This is a Career Channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at www.uctv.tv careers for videos, employment news, and trend articles to help recent college graduates and grads in career transition bridge to better employment. One of the things that I found is that when it comes to sustainability, everybody's got a different, different definition of what it means. Um, if you're you know, in an executive suite in a business, it may talk about the bottom line, the finances of a company. Um, from an environmental perspective, if you're dealing with environmental nonprofits, the focus is more on the environment, the sustainability of the environment, our ability to perpetuate generations ahead. Um, you know, and everyone kind of looks at it differently. What I'd like to do is sort of throw out all those definitions and just look at kind of the, the broad cross-section and spectrum of what sustainability is. Um, I really think there's, there's kind of four key components to it. It's the utility, the ethos, the pathos, and the profit motive. Um, and I think all those can exist in the same place. So that's kind of what we want to talk about today. And, you know, if, there's, if you take one thing out of here, it's, it comes down to the individual within a company, within an institution, an organization, a nonprofit, and their view and their vision. We've got a couple case studies that get to that point. So um, what I'd like to do is kind of dive into our presentation here. There's three kind of key topical areas. We're going to look real broad across the world and what drives innovation with companies. Um, and ultimately, it's, it's a variety of factors. We'll look at some of the, the government influences on sustainability and how that rolls over to the private sector. And then we'll look at three case studies, so two companies and then one public agency. Um, so really, I think at the high level of sustainability, it's about enabling global trends. And I think the most important thing that's happened in the sustainability space is financing. At the end of the day, any organization, if it's a nonprofit, if it's a government agency, if it's a business, has to answer to their board of directors, and they have to answer to their bottom line. If they're profitable, they stay in business. If they're not, they make losses for a while, and then they close up shop. But for renewable energy projects, for example, to be sustainable, they've had to pencil out. The most valuable thing that happened in the last 30 years, 40 years, um, you know, beyond maybe Jimmy Carter putting solar panels on the White House in the, in the uh, late 70s, was tax equity funding. And what that basically did was it allowed a bank and a consortium of banks to come in, buy a solar system for a property owner, and the property owner wouldn't have to pay for it. They just pay a lower monthly rate. Um, are you all familiar with Solar City? So they, are, they really started this move in 2008. They opened up a tax equity fund. They have a solar lease. It's zero money down. They'll put a solar system on your roof, and it automatically saves you about 20% if your solar bill is $200 a month or more. Um, and it's really, it was Morgan Stanley and U.S. Bank that led that initiative. So, you know, we talk about environmental sustainability solutions to, um, to coal-based and oil-based types of energy production. Solar Cities really led that charge in finding a more financially efficient way to get solar systems on people's houses. It's been a great benefit for the banks because a tax equity fund lets them hide their profits, essentially, um, in a long-term asset, a 20-year asset. It's great for the solar installers because it gives them a mechanism to walk into a homeowner or a, a company and say, we can give you solar for free and lower your energy bills. Um, so you know, it's, it's that shift across multiple markets that have really made a big change. Um, you know, and kind of continuing with the theme of investment opportunities, um, right here we've got a chart of four socially responsible investment funds. So for people interested in finance, for example, that have a finance background, and you're asking yourself, how can I pursue more of a sustainable career? Well, rather than financing oil exploration or you know, some of the, the old industries, um, there are a lot of opportunities to invest in companies. 
this bottom line down here is the S&P 500 performance um, over a, I think this is a 20-year period. We went back, um, yeah, about a 15-year period. Baseline is the S&P 500. All the colors above it are the four major funds. We looked at the uh, MSCI, um, Parnassus Fund, Walden, and Calvert Funds. All of them have outperformed the S&P 500 over this period of time, over the last 15 years, which was a, a fairly robust period of economic growth, notwithstanding the last six. The point is that by having a rigorous social environmental platform by which they make choices on what companies they invest in and doing what's called activist shareholder moves, which is essentially a shareholder comes and buys a stake of a company and forces the company by board direction to change their policies, to be more environmentally sustainable, to take into account women's issues, to create programs for men and women to take time off when they have kids, to be more family friendly, that sustain their employees and that sustain the finances of the company. The companies are more productive. Um, you know, so that's, it's kind of an interesting way to look at it if you have more of a business background or business acumen. Um, these two slides are meant to illustrate government interference and how it can be, it can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. These are charts that show the, uh, the carbon exchanges. How familiar are we all with the carbon markets and what carbon trading is? Uh, I'll give a real quick overview then. Um, one of the great solutions to global warming right now is taking a broad look at how much carbon and sulfur we put into the atmosphere. The belief is that if we put a cap on that and lower that over time, then we'll be able to cut back on carbon emissions, cut down on global warming, and our great-grandkids will actually have an Earth that they can live on instead of have to follow Elon Musk's dream and go live on Mars. Um, so what this shows, though, is that while we've tried to put a cap on carbon, and then set a price on it. And the way this mechanism works is a business can only put so much carbon in the atmosphere. So say a, a power plant, they get a cap on what they can pollute. If they go above that cap, they have to buy credits from a company that goes below their cap. So it's effectively just a, it's a buy and sell mechanism that allows companies to offset their pollution. The idea is that it gets so expensive that companies start looking at more efficient ways, more sustainable ways, if you will, to run their operations and not have those added expenses. Um, unfortunately, the inverse of that goal has happened. Um, a few countries in, uh, got behind the Kyoto Protocol in Japan, which was supposed to set a broad-based world, worldwide agreement on what carbon output should be. The U.S. has continued to refuse to sign it, um, and a couple of other key Western European countries have refused to sign it, and therefore the really big polluters like China refuse to sign it, so we can't get that worldwide change that this would happen. And what it's done is it's led to this downtick. These are all spot prices or market prices for carbon credits. They've gone down over this period of time from uh, 2008 to the present. Um, so it's, change can happen from governments, but you know, I really, again, wanted to get to this point of it takes individual actors in a company and individual companies to come together as a consortium to make the types of changes that we need to see to make a more sustainable business environment. Yeah. Don't they have to release the carbon at night or something so we can see the <laughs> Companies have done that in the past in some areas. I don't know if it's a rule. Uh, I guess it depends on the, the state and their regulations. Um, I know on, like on the Mississippi River, this isn't carbon. It's, it's water pollution. A lot of times they'll put, companies will push their pollution into the river at night when people don't see it or when there isn't monitoring happening. Exactly. And that's the kind of stuff that social activists need to fight, you know, to look at it from the nonprofit perspective. 
Um, at the end of the day, a lot of what holds back really wholesale change, like the carbon platform, is political intransigence. Um, it's the types of attitude that people like Ted Cruz have, um, and I will very happily lambaste him and many extreme members of the Republican Party, even though I'm pretty moderate to, to write myself, um, that have this attitude that the world is here for us to exploit from, and it doesn't really matter, sort of this nihilist act attitude. Um, at the end of the day, there's great companies like Seventh Generation. Um, if any of you shop at Sprouts, you've probably seen their, their roles. The name of that company comes from the ethos, and I can't remember the Indian tribe, but they always look forward seven generations when they make a decision. I had the opportunity to go to Alaska about five years ago. I met with a local Indian tribe, and they had an opportunity to turn their watershed into a giant coal mine, or excuse me, copper mine. They had $50 billion worth of copper that they were sitting on in a watershed that their tribal nation owned. Um, There are 598 people in the tribe, so they would have all done very well from this. The issue that they ran into, though, is that for 5,000 years, their people had fished that watershed and gotten salmon from it, and they decided to turn down the offers to develop that copper uh, because they wanted to be able to keep their cultural heritage and not go the way of a lot of of lower 48 Indian tribes that have fallen on drugs and alcoholism because they've lost their cultural heritage integrity. So, you know, you talk about sustainability. Sometimes it's a matter of foregoing what seems like a great opportunity and perhaps on paper looks like a good opportunity in exchange for a group or a community's cultural heritage, what that organization or what that entity wants. Um, so what we look at here, though, you know, there are a lot of pressures to keep things at the status quo. Um, at the end of the day, by 2020, if we follow the fracking practices that we've taken on in this country, we'll be in a position where we're totally energy independent in the U.S., um, right now, we are very energy dependent on the rest of the world. I think, I can't remember the number, so I won't quote it, but I know a great, great uh, predominance of our power comes from abroad, particularly for transportation. Um, we will continue on that track, but the key is really focusing on a more diversified portfolio. Over 1% of our power is now produced, in the U.S., is produced by solar and wind. Um, there's a lot of great opportunity for that because of the financing mechanisms we talked about before, tax equity funds. So, you know, again, when you're looking at sustainability, even with companies like this, fracking puts a lot of toxic chemicals in the ground. Um, it's going to take engineers. I heard somebody mention before that there are double E. It's going to take, you know, civil engineers that look at these problems and mechanical and fluid engineers that can solve these types of issues and come up with alternatives to the chemicals that are used to do fracking. So even in the oil and gas space, there's room for opportunity to create a more sustainable way to extract what, at the end of the day, we all need. I drove here in a diesel car. gets great fuel efficiency, but it's still diesel. So, you know, we, we need to look at how we can do things better before we can change the world and sort of throw out the old system. Um, one of the interesting areas for opportunity is actually in, uh, in global infrastructure. Right now, watersheds throughout the world are horribly polluted. Um, we deal with this issue with major corporations like Coke, who does have a great social responsibility record. They still put a lot of pollutants into the watersheds, uh, particularly in India, where they do a lot of their bottling operations. So, you know, again, looking at different areas and possibilities where we can make some change. Um, I want to get a little bit more granular now on what sustainability means. Um, in the world of finance, um, I'm assuming we all have a general idea what bonds are, but it's basically a debt that a company or a government takes on to finance their operations. They may have revenues that come in sporadically. Issuing a bond allows money to come in from investors that will keep things operating well, and the company services that debt over time. A major revolution in the last couple of years has been in green bonds. 
They're very specifically earmarked for renewable energy developments. Um, Toyota was one of the, the first major issuers of, uh, of green bonds, and they did that as a financing mechanism to help more people get high-efficiency cars. So we talked a bit about finance before, and it's those types of aggressive and bold steps. Um, in this case, green bonds came out of Europe, but they've created this opportunity to put consumer products like a car that gets up to 95 miles per gallon into people's hands and starts to address these issues. We still have to get to work. When we face it, the U.S. and even other parts of the world that are developing have an infrastructure that's based on driving. It's not based on public transportation. But if we can make that existing system work better, that gets us to a more sustainable plane. Another, to kind of take a different tack, to look at the nonprofit side a little bit, um, industry certifications are important. We get different alliances of organizations. Blue Sign, for example, is a, it's a collaborative that was put together by Patagonia and a few other clothing companies. And their approach is they wanted to clean up their entire production line. The textile industry is a messy one from a human rights perspective, from a pollution perspective, from all the dyes. Where I grew up in Connecticut, um, the Naugatuck River, which ran in a community next to mine, used to run a different color based on and this was back in the 50s, but based on whatever dye was being used in the textile mills in that area. It's changed since then. I have never saw that in my lifetime, but it did irreparable damage to a lot of the watersheds in Connecticut. Um, so the point of Blue Sign was to put together an industry standard that companies jumped onto and got on board with. Um, another example that's not on here is 1% for the planet. Um, that was another initiative started by Patagonia, and the idea was companies assign, essentially tie themselves 1% to give back to environmental causes and restoration causes to help offset some of the damage that they've done um, as businesses. Uh, the MSC is the Marine Stewardship Council, um, and that's a program that was put together to help protect fisheries. Um, the downside of an organization like that is it's extremely expensive. A friend of mine owns a salmon farm in New Zealand, and he wanted very much to become MSC certified. Um, the issue that he had, though, was his company only did about 500000 a year in revenue, and it was going to cost him 125000 to get certified. So, and that's, you know, it's a matter of monitoring and upgrades and ongoing compliance that he had to do. So I remember I met him at Scripps, and he was asking, how do I do this on my own? And ultimately what they ended up doing was developing a corporate policy that set all the guidelines of how they'd run their watershed that mostly exceeded MSC certifications. Um, you know, so the point being, going back to the individual organization and the people, either you know, the owners, Pat's only a 5% owner, but he was able to convince his partners that they needed to get on board with this because at the end of the day, it made a better product. Their consumers were happier, and they were able to charge more for it. Um, LEED, I think, is it's a little bit more common in the popular vernacular if you're in the building industry. Um, the U.S. Green Building Council did a very, very innovative thing, and they really set the stage for organizations setting standards and generating revenue from that by putting together the LEED certification. Um, most buildings that are going up now are LEED certified at some level. Um, and it really, at the end of the day, LEED ultimately saves the company a lot of money. The tower I work in downtown is LEED certified. Um, they're very judicious about their use of air conditioning, about their recapturing of water, about their use of heat in the winter. And as a result of that, they're able to cut down on their operating expenses fairly significantly. So that's a great example of a program that was put together by a nonprofit organization that benefits for-profit corporations by lowering their costs that well exceed the, the cost of getting LEED certified. Okay, so the first case study I wanted to talk about is Patagonia. Um, they are a shining example of a company that constantly looks forward to its footprint on the, on the planet. Um, if you haven't seen, been exposed to, or read the book, Let My People Go Surfing, I highly, highly recommend it. 
if there's anything else that you do coming out of this class, you know, you should obviously get into the sustainability program. But if you don't do that, you should read that book. It completely changed how we operate my company and where we're going and what our growth trajectory looks like. Um, Patagonia constantly looks at their supply chain. And as we mentioned before, it's a complex and long one. Um, this chart here shows all their factories and the textile mills around the world that they source to. Um, it's fairly complicated. There's a lot of shipping that goes on to create the Patagonia jackets that we wear. Um, Patagonia was a leader in developing a technology called Cinchilla, which is their more modern evolution of the, uh, the poly, um, polypropylene jacket. It's sourced from plastic bottles. And the question that they had at the company was, if we're going to make all this product and have all this waste, how do we sort of go full circle and integrate as much material into it as possible that's recycled? And they were able to develop that technology. Um, they work very closely with all of their suppliers. If they have a company that doesn't have a human rights record in one of the, and typically in Asia this happens a lot, doesn't have the human rights standards that they want, they will invest capital in that company and help them get up to the standard that they think is right and just to make sure that their employees are paid a fair wage. Um, that they're treated with respect, that their buildings are safe and not collapsing on them like we've seen a few years ago in Bangladesh, um, and also that their environmental standards are to the level that Patagonia expects. Um, we talked a bit before about the 1% for the planet. Patagonia actually pushes about 10%, um, which is the legal limit that they can contribute as a company back towards nonprofit organizations to dam removal projects because there's a lot of fishermen, to wilderness protection programs because the founder, uh, Yvonne Schwinnard, is a climber. Um, you know, they're constantly looking out beyond the company. And they've grown from a company that was started, I think it was the late 60s. They were on the verge of bankruptcy in the mid-90s and almost had to close down. Now they're doing about $220 million a year in revenue, and they're consistently growing. Um, Schwinnard's wife, Melinda, was actually the leader of the movement that created maternity leave. And they've created a highly progressive um, in-house children's education center at the Patagonia facilities in Ventura. They've got over 300 kids at any given point in time that come to work with their parents, that have daycare and people working with them, but the parents can take some time and go interact with their children. And it's been really progressive. The company continues to work well, and the elementary school teachers in Ventura constantly comment on how intellectually, emotionally, and socially advanced the kids are that come out of Patagonia. Um, so, you know, broadly speaking, they, they've really set the standard and continue to work and legislate as a company and individuals. Um, one of the cool things that they did was they had four employees in the Reno, Nevada facility, which is where all their shipping goes out from in the U.S., that wanted to set aside land in Nevada. And the company agreed to give them their salary for six months, office space, and any resources that they needed. They were able to, in six months, set aside 1.2 million acres of land as wilderness space. For in perpetuity in Nevada. So, you know, this is a great example of, you know, for any of you that have aspirations to own a business or are in upper levels of management, great examples of how you can take your company in a certain direction, support your employees and their passions or your coworkers and their passions, and really steer your company's resources in a way that will be good for the world. It's great press and PR. And at the end of the day, you've got people that are dedicated to the company. Um, when you have full-time employees, it can cost up to $50,000 to replace somebody in terms of lost time, wages, lost productivity, and the search for a new person. So it's really critically important that we, as we're looking at companies and government agencies and nonprofits, keep these things in mind. Um, the second example, and I have to disclose these guys are a client of mine, um, but I think they're a really good example of a government agency that is taking sustainability to a whole new level. 
The Encino Wastewater Authority is a sewage treatment plant in Carlsbad. Um, they serve Carlsbad, Vista, San Marcos, and Encinitas. Um, they've been doing this for 60-some-odd years now. They process sewage. They dump the treated effluent water out into the ocean as they're supposed to. And they've always taken their biosolids, which is the leftover poop and food scraps that come through, and they've been shipping it out to Arizona. Um, about 6,500 tons a year. So that's, I think it's 18 truckloads a day is what they were taking. Big, you know, 18-wheelers that they'd ship out, dump it on the desert floor, let it sit for 10 years, and then it was used to... Um, to fertilize alfalfa and Sudan grass farms to feed cattle, which they fatten up and then we eat. So it's in the food chain. The thing that Encina did was they said, all right, look, we need to be more focused on sustainability, on recovering our resources. They realized that there was an asset and a value in what was coming into their headworks, which is the main pipe that when you flush your toilet, everything goes down that. What they've done is they started recycling their water. So the facility set up to separate liquids and solids. All the liquids go through a, a series of treatment processes, and it's turned into purple pipe water, which if you go around town, you see purple pipes sticking up on the side of the road or purple boxes. That's recycled sewage water. It's used for irrigation. At the end of the day, water exists in a continuum. It goes up from the ocean, comes back over the land as clouds, it rains, it goes through runoff and aquifers, and ultimately we drink it, pee it out, and then it goes back out to the ocean and keeps going in this cycle. Um, Encina has essentially accelerated that cycle, and many other agencies have done the same thing. Um, there's an agency in Orange County that actually turns sewage water into drinking quality water. And the water's so pure when it comes out of the treatment plant that when they put it back into a reservoir before they can make it drinking water, the water quality goes down significantly and it has to be retreated before it can be consumed because of interacting with native water and the pollutants in the environment. So. Encina is on the track to do that. The other really cool thing that they've done is they take all their solid waste, their poop and food scraps, and they make fertilizer out of it. The human body is a relatively inefficient machine. There's a lot of nutrients and minerals that plants need to grow that's left over in our waste. So what they've done is over the last seven years built a facility, um, gone above and beyond all the EPA's standards of how you make a safe, healthy fertilizer out of human waste, and they've been building that. We've actually built a garden for them, and we're in the process of beginning to sell it on the retail markets. This isn't a new technology. Um, prior to the Clean Water Act, wastewater agencies used to lay this out in fields. Farmers would come by, pick it up in their trucks, bring it out to their fields, dump it out, and they would use human waste because it's rich in nutrients, and there's a lot of seeds left over. Tomato plants, for example, grow rampant all over the wastewater agency from the tomatoes that we eat. How many of you are grossed out now? <laughs> Just a little bit? They sell cow manure and chicken manure, That's right? true. Exactly. But it's not so close to home. Yeah. 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 It's always doing something else. You know? Yeah. Well, and the thing you have to watch out for when it comes to that, just to settle your conscience and mind a little bit, is that you don't want to get wastewater out of a heavy, heavily industrialized area because there's a lot of industrial chemicals in it. Carlsbad's unique in that it's a bedrock community. It's mostly residential. There's very few companies that are dischargers in that space. So they don't have you know, the arsenic and the cadmium, the heavy metals that, that would be in that. So it works there. So it's really just you know, whatever we eat. And then the heating and digestion process kills all the bacteria and viruses. So, um, but they're constantly looking forward as an agency, asking themselves, how can we excel in creating new products doing new projects that will recycle everything. So at the end of the day, they're not dumping wastewater in the ocean. They're not spending $2.2 million a year and the heavy carbon footprint of shipping sewage out to the desert and making it somebody else's problem and really closing the loop there. 
Um, you know, it's, it's a pretty remarkable place, and I'd highly recommend going up for a tour sometime if you're interested in learning about government-driven sustainability. They give tours? They do, constantly, yeah. We do uh, 3,000 people a year, 150 tours is what they did last year. So, and you can see the garden and eat tomatoes fresh out of it if you feel so bold. Um, the third company that I want to talk about is a little less, uh, well, it's, it's fun on the digestive side, a um, little less uh, risque than turning poop into fertilizer. It's Cliff Bar. Um, you probably all heard about Cliff Bar, Power Bar, energy food companies like that. Cliff Bar is unique in the sense that they, they went through a long iteration of growth where the current owner almost sold the company for $120 million in 2005. Um, and he had his, what he called his only nervous breakdown in life when he was supposed to sign the deal, decided not to do it, bought out his business partner, almost bankrupted the company in the process, but committed himself to having a company that respects their employees and their families. So some of the cool things that they did, going from a guy in a garage at 33, you know, going on long bike rides and wanting to find a way to be able to pay for his adventures, to an almost $500 million a year company that's a very recognized brand in the outdoor industry, is for every employee that comes in, they automatically get stock options in the company doesn't matter if you're a janitor or you're taking over as the president. Everyone gets a stake in the company. It's not a huge stake. It's not like Gary, the owner's stake. But the point is he's creating a, um, a culture where people feel like they've bought in. They're part of the company. They're part of the growth. And they stay around longer. So from an HR perspective, that creates a sustainable workforce. And you don't deal with those hiccups, those $50,000 hiccups we talked about before. Um, this picture that you see here is actually their kids' center. So like Patagonia, they followed their lead and they created an entire sort of employee wellness model where they have a staffed um, nursery and sort of toddler age area where kids can come in and basically spend the day interacting with other students. They have people teaching them all sorts of things, doing arts and crafts, and parents can come out and interact with them at will. Um, they put in a cafeteria. These guys are based up in Emeryville, which is a little bit north of Berkeley. Their cafeteria is all locally sourced. They have organic food, um, humanely raised beef, produce, salmon, all the fish in there. And it's free for the employees like Google does with their staff. Um, it creates an opportunity, though, beyond being able to eat, for people to interact with each other and bring up new ideas, come up with new strategies to market new product ideas. So it really it has a lot of cross-benefits. The, um, the back area here is a gym and wellness center. They believe in the physical fitness of their employees just as much as they believe in the, the fitness of the company. So they've got a climbing wall, yoga room, they've got a spin room, and all different types of resources and assets to keep their people happy. At the same time, they invest heavily back in nonprofits and community organizations that protect the areas that their employees like to recreate in. Um, so, you know, kayaking spots, mountain bike routes, climbing routes. Ski, ski areas and backcountry regions. Um, so they've really kind of taken a step back and looked at you know, the, the three Ps, the triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit. And they've prospered as a company as a result of that. So not every company has to be like Exxon and grab up as much land as possible and extract oil and move on to the next, uh, next territory to conquer. It's not the 1600s anymore, fortunately. So from a very broad perspective, you know, looking back down on it, I think the takeaways would be 
keeping in mind that sustainability comes from all of us as individuals, whatever we do in our various jobs in a company. Um, it's looking forward to how we can improve the lives of our neighbors, ourselves, our coworkers, how to improve our local environment, finding something that we're passionate about and bringing that into the fold in our company. Um, as business owners, if any of you own your own company or you have aspirations to do that, it's setting the right policy and bringing in the right people who have the same you know, attitude and belief that your company shares and supporting them in their endeavors. All right. Thank you very much.